Welcome to the June edition of the Vice Magazine podcast, your definitive monthly guide to enlightening information. I'm Erica Allen, deputy editor of Vice Magazine, sitting in for Ellis Jones. This month, we're celebrating the summer with our Salute Your Shorts issue. It'll be a hot one. Here's our table of contents. Photo editor Elizabeth Renstrom explains how she came across the Speedo-wearing senior citizen on this month's cover. Naomi found him on a windy road going along 191 in Arizona. Investigative reporter Jason Leopold dives into the troubling FBI file of the woman behind what's widely considered the longest political protest in U.S. history. I believe the government would have kept close tabs on Pichotto and her anti-war activities, but the FBI claims it was only able to locate about 60 pages on her. Next, I interview Vice Correspondent Gianna Taboni about the deadly threats to journalists in the Philippines. I don't know if I've ever seen anything more insane in my life. Then, senior editor Chris Carroll talks with Sarah Maslin about the rise in gang violence across the U.S. and why our deportation policy may be to blame. One common misconception about the MS-13 is that this is a gang that came from Central America. Actually, the MS-13 was born in the U.S. and only took root in Central America after around 6,000 gang members were deported. Finally, Broadley's Diana Torget reveals how Pokemon can teach us something about identity. Evie is often called, at least in trans communities, the transgender Pokemon. Evie has the opportunity to become multiple evolutionary forms. Standing proudly on the cover of this month's issue is an older man wearing nothing but a sun hat, a necklace, sneakers, and a G-string. Just imagine an 80-year-old version of the naked cowboy. Vice's photo editor, Elizabeth Renstrom, reveals who this man is and how he ended up a Vice magazine cover star. Naomi Harris is the artist behind our June Salute Your Shorts cover. And in this cover, you see a man wearing nothing but sneakers, a sun hat, and G-string. His name is Richard Tollward, and Naomi found him on a windy road going along 191 in Arizona. He told her he was a Vietnam War vet and that he voted for Hillary. At first, we were hesitant about using this cover image because we wrongly assumed it was taking an easy shot at red state Trumpers. But the fact that Richard voted for Hillary is a lot of the reason why we like this whole series in general, because it challenges and deep dives into a lot of people's misconceptions about the world outside of coastal America. This is also part of why Naomi, a prolific photographer from Toronto, set out after this year's election results. She stated, I needed to find out for myself how, when the polls and the media all said Hillary would win by a landslide, did we wake up to our current reality? What she came back with was a diverse series of portraits after living out of her car while road tripping across the U.S. for President Trump's first 100 days in office. Our cover star is just the beginning. For more than 30 years, one woman held a vigil in front of the White House. What inspired her? Our Freedom of Information Act expert, Jason Leopold, explains. Concepcion Pichato immigrated to the United States from Spain in 1960. And for more than three decades, she held a vigil at Lafayette Square in front of the White House. From a makeshift encampment, she peacefully protested wars and nuclear proliferation until her death on January 25th, 
2016, in what was widely considered the longest political protest in U.S. history. According to an obituary published in the Washington Post, Picciotto, known as Connie to her friends, first arrived at the White House in 1979, quote, after she came to believe that her husband had orchestrated an illegal adoption and arranged to have Ms. Picciotto separated from their child and committed. In a 2013 profile of her, also in the Washington Post, Picciotto said that her daily protest sprang from her need to, quote, stop the world from being destroyed. Picciotto became a tourist attraction of sorts, right up until her death, and she was convinced she was the target of various conspiracies, which are all laid bare in documents I obtained exclusively from the FBI in response to a Freedom of Information Act request that I filed immediately after her death. I believe the government would have kept close tabs on Picciotto and her anti-war activities, but the FBI claims it was only able to locate about 60 pages on her. And the majority of the records pertain to her life leading up to the 1981 vigil she began at the White House. Sadly, these files strongly suggest that Picciotto suffered from severe mental illness, and her condition may have turned dire after she was prohibited from seeing her adopted daughter. Here are three highlights. This file here is a 1978 memorandum sent to the special agent in charge at the FBI's Washington field office, memorializing an in-person visit by Picciotto. She told the agent that her ex-husband and his lawyer, quote, are trying to drive her crazy by spraying her with mace, acid, and all manners of toxic substances. The FBI agent wrote, Complainant advised that this was being done to take away the baby that she and her husband bought from a midwife in Argentina. Here's a three-page letter, typed in all caps from Picciotto, who had been living in New York City. If you're looking at this online or in print, you can see how she explained that she cannot give birth due to medical reasons, and she and her husband decided to adopt a baby girl from Argentina. But, according to her letter, they ran into some problems with immigration. Picciotto's letter says that when the case was finally resolved, her husband had her committed, filed for divorce, and refused to allow her to see the baby they adopted. Another document that appears to be a cable from the U.S. Embassy in Buenos Aires is titled, probable fraudulent baby case, and it notes that the Immigration and Naturalization Service was investigating the citizenship of the baby. Picciotto found herself roaming the streets of Washington, D.C., and her complaints to the FBI continued. Among those clippings was a handwritten letter sent to Webster, the FBI director, by a person whose name the Bureau redacted. I am now leaving D.C. permanently, says the May 15, 1986 letter addressed to Dear William. Please watch out for my friend Concepcion Picciotto at the anti-nuclear signs directly across from the White House in Lafayette Park. I would hate to see anything else happen to the poor woman. She has already suffered terribly. 
You can find more info on Conception Picciotto, including a letter she wrote to the FBI online or in print in the June issue. For Vice Magazine, I'm Jason Leopold. In the Philippines, being a journalist can be deadly, especially if you question the president, Rodrigo Duterte. In this next segment, I talk with vice correspondent Gianna Taboni about her visit to Manila. But it's not really a mystery what would attract a reporter to a story about press freedoms and controlling the narrative. But tell me a little bit about what's surprising and what drew you to the Philippines particularly. What's going on there? So Elise, my co-producer, and I um, were having conversations a year ago about how the story of press freedom rarely gets told, especially in film, because storytellers usually don't talk about other storytellers. And we didn't want to focus on foreign journalists. We felt very strongly about focusing on local journalists because I think what a lot of Americans and Westerners don't realize is when they open up the newspaper in the morning or when they watch a news story on cable news or wherever, our our stuff too, there's always a local journalist behind a foreign story. So it's not foreigners who are going out and getting these stories on their own. It's like the most essential piece to producing one of these stories is someone on the ground who understands the culture, who knows the language, who can help you tell the story on the local level. And then those are often the people who are also writing the stories for the local press there. Foreigners, while journalism can be dangerous, it's often more dangerous for the local reporters. And the reason is that they don't get to leave at the end of the story. And they're there when the story comes out. And it's a lot, frankly, easier to threaten, kill, detain, jail a local journalist than it is a foreign journalist. As we've seen in the press from James Foley to our own journalist who was arrested in in Turkey and Simon who was arrested in Russia, there's a huge backlash in the foreign press. Governments get involved. It's uh, it's something that no foreign government wants to deal with. They don't want to deal with the American government coming after them for detaining or killing a journalist. So we wanted to focus on local journalists because we felt like that was a story that hadn't been told before. We're incredibly dependent on them um, and their communities, their freedom, their country's freedom is completely dependent on them. Um, So when we were deciding which country to go to, we had some really amazing people in Mexico, in Iraq, in Syria and Ethiopia in several different countries. We did go to Mexico, but we also went to the Philippines. And the reason that we focused on the Philippines was because they have this new leader, as many of you probably know, uh, Rodrigo Duterte. He's been in office for just under a year, and he's managed to execute the most ruthless war on drugs that's maybe ever been executed in world history. In just under a year, that war on drugs uh, is responsible for thousands of deaths. I think up to almost 9,000 people have died in this. And he's also been very outspoken about journalists. And while the Philippines does have a free and independent press, Um, They have a long history of abuses of press freedom. And after he took his presidency, Duterte essentially condoned the assassination of journalists. And so we felt like that was a very important place to go and, and tell part of this story. You know, he does have some challengers. There are people and reporters who are doing the work. They're out there reporting on these extrajudicial killings that are sort of under the guise of this this war on drugs, but maybe have some other motivations. Tell me a little bit about who you all met while you were 
in the Philippines. So we were sort of embedded with the press corps there and something that's a little bit strange uh, and that we didn't expect when we went on the uh, night crawler beat is what they called it, um, which usually starts around 10 p.m. and you go till 5 a.m. We were doing it night after night. We met up with the press corps at their office which was inside the police station. And of course, the police are overseeing the war on drugs. That felt a little bit strange because it's obviously very easy to keep an eye on a group of journalists if they're inside your compound. We followed a journalist named A. Balatasi. She's an incredibly brave journalist who actually, and we didn't make a big point of this in the film and in the article, but she actually has a day job. She reports during the day and she volunteers to cover the crime beat at night because she feels so strongly about it. So she's incredibly brave. She goes to these crime seats night after night after night where, you know, there are dead bodies and she's meeting with families who have just lost their loved ones. One thing we noticed was that she's incredibly cautious. So where an American journalist would go in there and be very blatant in their terms about what's happening, she was more cautious. And I think a good example of that is we went to a crime scene one night and we showed up after the crime scene had already been taped off. So the body was probably 50 feet from us. And there was a gun next to the hand. And the police were making official statements saying this was uh, a criminal, this was someone who was dealing drugs, he had a gun, he was shooting at our police officers. And so we shot back and and that's how he died. While A was walking around interviewing people, a photographer, one of her friends came up to her and said, hey, there are some business owners around back who say that they saw the body before the police showed up and swarmed the body. And there was not a gun next to his hand. And so A said, okay, that's strange. So she went around the corner. She started interviewing these guys and their backyard faces the crime scene. So they did have a clear view of the body and they had pictures. And when we looked at the pictures, they weren't very clear, but you could see that there wasn't a gun there. And then, of course, the pictures we have, there's a gun there. We put that in our film, and we outlined it as we experienced it. A Human Rights Watch representative who was there with us did the same thing. He told this story in his report, and A decided not to. She didn't publish the story. She didn't publish the photos. And we asked her why, and she said, the photos aren't clear enough, so I don't feel comfortable reporting it. That seemed very responsible as a journalist, but it also seemed incredibly cautious. We thought that there was a way to tell this story where you could say, essentially to the readers, decide for yourselves, here are the two photos that we have. But there's obvious consequences that come along with that. A says that she doesn't fear for her life, but she understands the risks against journalists. And when we talked to the Human Rights Watch executive, he was saying, I'm not surprised. These journalists are very brave, but they also have to be careful. Beyond just the idea of controlling the narrative by threatening journalists who are maybe more cautious than American journalists would be or more cautious than outside people coming in might be, there's another element of controlling the narrative, which is just pure propaganda that's happening in the Philippines, right? You write about in the piece going to a what you thought was going to be a pretty straightforward press conference by the police chief, and it ended up being something very different. So could you tell us a little bit about just the experience of seeing this very blatant propaganda, basically, in the Philippines? For the work that we do, we're in different countries every month. We see some of the craziest things. I don't know if I've ever seen anything more insane in my life. We showed up. We thought it was going to be just a very sort of dry 
press conference where the chief of police who is overseeing the war on drugs would stand up and give an update. Instead, we had trouble finding it because all we could hear was really loud music. It was like a music festival at the location where the press conference was supposed to be. So we started asking around and people said, no, no, you're here. Come on in. So we walked in and we see several different stages. I mean, it looked like a huge music festival that you'd see in the U.S., And so we just started watching and we're trying to figure it out. And a lot of signs that say things about the war on drugs, don't do drugs, say no to drugs. And we're seeing these Filipino pop stars who are like completely decked out and like huge productions. And then we start seeing a bunch of people shuffling toward us. And we hear someone come over the microphone and the local producer we're with says, oh, they're introducing the chief of police. So we look up. And there he is. He's the chief of police. He's a celebrity there. He comes on stage, and we thought, okay, whatever. He's just going to give his statement on stage. Instead, he starts performing with the pop stars. So here's this, like, big dude. He's, like, this big police officer, chief of police, and he's singing what sounded like just sort of like a 90s love song. And people are going insane. Like, everyone is under the age of 30 with their cell phones out. They're screaming. They're taking pictures of him. It's like Filipino Beyonce was on stage. And at the end of it, he made a statement about, you know, all we're trying to do in this war on drugs is to cleanse the Philippines. And he used the word cleanse. Uh, and then the crowd responded in a chant, Duterte, Duterte. And what was so sort of surreal about the whole thing is that night across town, Police officers were killing drug users and drug dealers and in some cases, you know, innocent people or people who there's no evidence against. And there are all these young people here who have completely bought into this narrative of this is good for our country. It was unbelievable. Duterte, like some other world leaders we know, is big into Twitter and social media and sort of presents himself as a man of the people and that he has the working man's best interest at heart. So to your mind, why is it that people have have bought this so readily, that young people are are showing up at a concert and chanting for a police official? Yeah, it's this sort of anti-elitist, nationalist message that seems to be sweeping the world right now, and it's definitely working in the Philippines. I mean, he's been accused of hiring literally hundreds of thousands of trolls to work on social media and to present his narrative, and he's been incredibly effective. When we were there, he had an 86% approval rating. People love him. People love him. And people don't... It's either that they agree with what he's doing with the war on drugs, or they're too scared to say that they don't agree. And that fear is working. And it's also his crass verbiage. It's his whole presentation as this sort of people, people's man. It just works. People just love him. I mean, it felt a little bit like Russia in that everybody had a picture of him. His face was on t-shirts. His face was on iPhone cases. He's just, he's completely taken this country. Um, it's honestly, it was, it was pretty disturbing to see. there's maybe a little bit less at risk for an American journalist who at the end of the day can leave. How did you feel being there and speaking to these people, going on the Nightcrawler beat, just in terms of the differences between reporting maybe in other countries, reporting in the States, and just identifying with these other reporters as as colleagues and peers? 
I really didn't want to leave, and the Philippines isn't a pleasant place to be, and I really didn't want to leave because we felt like we just scratched the surface. I mean, there were so many stories there. I don't think I've ever been to a place where, I mean, I swear every hour we were all looking at each other like, oh my God, there's another story. We have to come back, and I think we will. I didn't feel good about leaving. You know, I wanted to stay and continue digging into the story, but the journalists there, despite the threats that they're getting and despite having to be cautious, they're doing a great job. Um, and I think foreign journalists continue to travel there to tell this story. So thankfully, the story hasn't died yet. And it shouldn't die because they're on the brink of a genocide. I don't know if that's too dramatic to say, but I mean, thousands of people being killed in the first year of his presidency. It's a really, it's a really scary thing. Listeners can tune in to Vice on HBO to see the Controlling the Narrative episode sometime this summer. And now for this episode's deep dive. For the past several years, journalist Sarah Maslin has been reporting on gang violence in El Salvador. Maslin has seen how these stories start and how they end. In this next segment, Maslin explains to Vice senior editor Chris Carroll why this all-too-common tragedy may be the result of the U.S. deportation policy. What is MS-13? MS-13 is a Salvadoran gang that was born in Los Angeles in the 1980s among mostly the children of refugees who had fled a civil war in El Salvador. They found themselves in LA. Um, It started really as just a group of friends. They were into metal and rock music, but over time the gang hardened and found itself sort of getting into street fights and skirmishes with groups of Mexican teenagers, black teenagers. And that's when it sort of, you see it becoming more of a a gang that was using violence. So what's happening with it at this moment? What you're hearing about the MS-13 now is a spike in violence in a lot of immigrant towns in the U.S. Um, These are often suburbs because these days immigrants are are living in uh, suburbs like around the D.C. area, on Long Island, in Los Angeles, in Texas. I think the key thing really to, to try to understand here is why we're seeing this right now. And the uptick in this MS-13 violence has been linked to the arrival of tens of thousands of Central American teenagers and kids from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. And the reason that they are arriving into the U.S. is because they are fleeing gang violence back in Central America, where the MS-13 also has a strong presence. Now, what is the government doing about this? You know, the government has known about the MS-13 for decades at this point. The first sort of investigations and attempts to clamped down on MS-13 activity actually started in the late 1990s and early 2000s in a previous wave of violence. And since then, there have been FBI teams, uh, gang squads, to try to track and address this violence. Local police departments have formed gang investigation units and teamed up with the federal government. But really, what you've seen over time is mostly an emphasis on repression and on prosecuting these cases. What has not been developed as much, certainly in Long Island and on the East Coast, is more the side of prevention. 
You see it more in California, in Los Angeles, where the gangs have been around for longer. There they have developed gang prevention initiatives. But for the most part, certainly right now, the, the attention is on trying to eradicate and um, extinguish the gang by locking people up. And even, you know, Trump talks a lot about deporting gang members and getting rid of them. There hasn't been a lot of attention as to why these kids are ending up in the gangs in the first place. So, you know, one of the things you say in the piece, which is really interesting, is that this approach of this iron-fisted kind of lock them up, deport them approach is not going to help and possibly just going to make things worse. So why is that? Well, because it's already been tried before. In the 1990s, when the MS-13 was starting to, um, I guess, become a presence in Los Angeles and become known for murders and extortion and all sorts of other violent crimes, the strategy was to lock people up. And in fact, in the 1990s, what you saw is some changes in immigration law that made it easier to deport people. And uh, President Clinton, starting with Clinton and then Bush and Obama, deported thousands of gang members back to Central America. And one common misconception about the MS-13 is that this is a gang that came from Central America. Actually, the MS-13 was was born in the U.S. and only took root in Central America after around 6,000 gang members were deported back to Central America in the mid-1990s. Then the gangs were coming into a country and a region that had been through civil war, that had very weak police forces, and had a lot of veterans and guns lying around, creating really the perfect conditions for a gang like the MS-13 to spread. So really, go back to your question, the reason that locking up gang members and and just trying to deport them and, and get them out of our country is a risky proposal is because this is really exactly what the U.S. government did 20 years ago, and it totally backfired. It led to the gang violence that is just ravaging Central America's Northern Triangle, which is El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras now, and sending tens of thousands of of teenagers back to the U.S. to try to escape that violence. I mean, I think really what it comes down to is why do kids join gangs? What you're hearing from the Trump administration, but also from some local police departments, is that the gangs in Central America are sending up gang members to infiltrate the U.S. But when you really, when you talk a little bit more to some of the detectives and and the police officers and and investigators who are looking at these cases, you hear that really it's only a very tiny number of gang members who are coming into the U.S. as immigrants, and that most of the people who are coming in are regular teenagers and kids and young adults who are fleeing violence. In order to keep a kid away from a gang, you need to provide an alternative for that kid. What people who are working in gang prevention basically talk about is creating a support system and a safety net. The different people that kids come into contact with in their daily lives, families, schools, the community groups, and then, you know, as sort of a last resort, the police. All of those people need to be doing more. 
I wondered if you might talk a bit as an example of the way in which institutions here are failing these kids about what you saw when you were reporting in Brentwood on Long Island and and maybe just a bit of sort of prefacing information about what brought you to Brentwood for this piece. It's a complex web of factors that lead to immigrant kids ending up in gangs. When you look at what has happened in communities like Brentwood over the past few years, you see school districts that are completely overwhelmed by an influx of students that they don't necessarily know how to handle or have the resources to handle. You see kids joining parents that they may have not seen for 10 or 15 years, and you see law enforcement departments that have really had sort of a a difficult relationship with immigrants over the years. And now, especially when law enforcement is beginning to team up with immigration authorities uh, in Suffolk County, the sheriff reversed a policy that prohibited immigration authorities from having a presence in jails. Now immigration authorities are allowed in the jails and are beginning to do raids with local police forces. All of that sends a message to immigrant families that that they can't trust the institutions that are supposed to protect them. Well, this is so, so that's an interesting question is that as ICE becomes more aggressive, what you you know, and this was something I think you saw when you were on Long Island, that immigrant communities are starting to sever connections with the very institutions that I think need to be most in touch with them. That's exactly right. I mean, when you talk to people who have studied gangs, they often talk about two different groups of people or of kids. And one of those groups are very violent gang members who are committing the majority of the murders and the crimes. These are people who are maybe, who aren't probably going to be able to integrate back into society. But then the vast majority of teenagers who are hanging out with gangs are kids who simply are looking for a way to fit in and a sense of belonging. And those are the kids who All it would take is, you know, one teacher who believed in them or a community group that could give them an alternative to hanging out with the gang. In terms of this sense of fear and and trust with the police, when we're looking at the MS-13 and upticks in crime and really horrific murders like the ones that I wrote about in Brentwood, what police need right now is a community that's willing to trust them in order to provide information about the gang. Is it the case that there really are more killings and other incidents of violence now than there have been in the recent past? Or is it just that it is being more noticed in the press than it had been previously? I think it's a combination of both. If you read about the MS-13, there's a great journalist named Sarah Garland who wrote a book about gangs on Long Island in 2008, and she was writing at a time when there was similar concern about a string of murders by the MS-13 in Hempstead, which is another community on Long Island. So this isn't something that's totally unprecedented. If, uh, you know, if you graphed the murders attributed to the MS-13 over the past 20 years, what you would see is sort of maybe a sine curve, ups and downs. I think, you know, right now there has been an uptick or an increase in violence, and that is related to kids coming over from Central America. But 
I think what we have to look at is how that's been framed. The way that it's been framed, and this sort of answers your question about whether perhaps it has something to do with the current political climate, why the MS-13 has been in the news so much. It's a very convenient explanation to argue that the uptick in violence is a direct result of lax immigration policies or of a failure to be weeding out dangerous criminals who are coming into our country. But again, when you talk to the the detectives and the prosecutors who have been working gang cases for decades, the story that really comes out is that most people who are coming into this country, the vast majority, are not gang members. And what's really happening is that they're Teenagers and kids are coming over um, into communities, immigrant communities, where perhaps the gang has been dormant or has been under the radar or even has been demolished before by law enforcement. But when these kids arrive, the gang has realized that they're a convenient pool of recruits. And so that's really what I think the emphasis needs to be on is understanding what happens once these kids come to the U.S. and why they're ending up joining these gangs and causing this uptick in crime and violence. Every 90s kid knew Pokemon. We collected them, traded them, maybe even held on to them well into our 20s and 30s. One Pokemon has secured a special place in Broadly writer Diana Torje's heart. So I was in Southern Virginia. It was in Gloucester, Virginia this spring for a story. I was doing a documentary film series called Youth Interrupted, which was about transgender teenagers and their families and the way in which anti-transgender legislation disrupts their lives. I'd come to Gloucester to meet a teenage boy named Gavin Grimm, who is at the heart of a landmark civil rights case for transgender Americans. He's been fighting against his local school district for the right to use the boys' bathroom, pretty much for his entire high school experience. Gavin and I spent a day together, and... I'm transgender myself, and so meeting Gavin was really emotional for me because I see him as someone who's fighting really hard for the rights of people like me and him. He introduced me to his pot belly pig and an old parrot that kept yelling, uh, met his family and his mother, his father, uh, his twin brother, and... At the very end of the day, just this very uh, relaxed moment after everything, we were sitting on the couch and he was opening up more to me just about his interests as a teenager. Outside and abstract from these obscure political debates that he's constantly forced to be in the center of, and, you know, one of his interests is Pokemon cards. And that just sort of made me laugh because when I was a teenager, Pokemon cards were one of my big interests too. And he seemed to have a similar obsession with them as I once did. And I don't necessarily think that means all trans people like Pokemon, though Gavin did tell me that jokingly. 
it was just sort of a special moment where I connected with him as a youth and, you know, related the adolescence that he has that he might be losing in part because he's forced to be a leader of a civil rights movement to a degree. I don't think Gavin ever asked for this. He gave me a card, which meant a lot to me because there are a few people in my life who I've met through my work who I admire and who I feel grateful for having had the privilege to interview and get to know and share their story. And Gavin is certainly one of them. And on a couple of occasions, people like that have given me something, some sort of remnant of our time together. And I value those artifacts deeply because they're just this physical reminder of this moment that occurred in this thing that we were creating and sort of took on an ironic significance because it was an Eevee Pokemon card. And Eevee is often called, at least in trans communities, the transgender Pokemon because where all Pokemon have an evolutionary cycle and path, Eevee has the opportunity to become multiple evolutionary forms. Gavin gave me something that I'm going to remember and cherish for the rest of my life. The Vice Magazine podcast is a production of Vice Media. This issue was produced and edited by Tim Barnes with production assistance from our intern, Taylor Peterson. For more info on the podcast or how to subscribe to the magazine, visit vice.com. And be sure to leave a review for the Vice Magazine podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or any podcast app you use. I'm Erica Allen, filling in for Ellis Jones, and I'd like to give a special thanks to all the voices you heard on this episode. Elizabeth Renstrom, Jason Leopold, Gianna Taboni, Chris Carroll, Sarah Maslin, and Diana Torje. We'll be back soon with an all-new episode.